Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. And it is time for another book club. And for this one, um, since as we record this, the U.S. has been rocked by, I think it's 10 days now, of protest over the murder of George Floyd, a black man, by white police officers. And Floyd was one in a long line of police brutality that left black people dead and without justice. And right now, there are curfews in cities across the U.S. The military and National Guard are deploying violence um, and using things like tear gas and concussion grenades and rubber bullets. So... Right. Um, and we should add that it's not just in the U.S. There's so many protests yes. going around the world in solidarity with uh, the U.S., with the Black Lives Matter movement, including the fact that Greece actually just burnt down the U.S. embassy. Um, of course, we do not condone burning down of buildings, but I think it does says a lot to where we are as a country in the view of the world. Um, yes. And yes, for today's book club, we are discussing White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo, with a foreword by Michael Eric Dyson. And this was actually recommended to me by my slash our, Annie, I guess, yes. um, therapist. And one of the criterias when we were choosing a therapist, which we decided to have during our first recordings together, mm-hmm. um, which was a trauma series essentially about Me Too era and just sexual assault and, and childhood trauma for both of us. Um, one of my criterias was that it had to be uh, someone with a clinical level and a woman of color. Um, I've talked about it previously on the show of how I've been struggling with my identity as a woman of color, as a Korean woman who was adopted by a white family. And though I love my family so much, I do, y'all, and they have been good to me. They're a loving, kind family. Um, but I learned pretty early on that as a conservative religion Southern family, they were and are ingrained with a lot of racial bias, which has taken a pretty heavy toll for me, especially now in not only uh, having a self-loathing because I was a woman of color, um, but also undoing some of that trauma, some of that narrative in my mind. Um, So she recommended that we read this, uh, which was published in 2018, specifically so I could talk to my family um, and kind of try to figure out how to undo some of the things that have happened in my own mindset as well as hopefully maybe help them as well. But I will say it's a long road. Um, And this book actually has become, of course, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, D'Angelo is a white woman who received a PhD in multicultural education and two honorary doctorates. And her focus has and is in whiteness studies and critical discourse. So she coined the term white fragility in 2011. So I think it's important to note that part of the reason we are doing this book is because (laughs) it was kind of homework for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, And D'Angelo wrote the book as a white woman primarily for white people. And she addresses this right off the bat, recognizing she is only one piece of this puzzle and certainly not the only voice that should be heard. From the reading guide on D'Angelo's website, this book and its arguments build on anti-racism scholarship and activism that people of color have written for generations. That scholarship has been fundamental in the ability of the author to explicate 
white fragility. Use this text as a starting point rather than the ending point to educate yourself on racism. There are many suggestions for engaging with the work of people of color in the resources for continuing education section of the book. So yes, at the end, she has a great list of all these resources for continued reading, continued education. Right. Essentially, it's a historical examination of racism in the U.S. and why white people are so seemingly unable to talk about it. Um, And I think... I love that our audience is ready and open. We've, they've been very receptive and really ready to do this. And we did have a, a couple of comments in there, which do once again show how automatically defensive uh, people can be, especially in the white community. And I will say also in the non-black people of color communities. Um, so it's told partially through anecdotes from D'Angelo's personal life, some from her experience conducting anti-racist training and education seminars, along with historical context and examples, providing tools and tips for how to do anti-racial work. Yes. So let's start with a definition. Um, From D'Angelo's website, white fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors in turn function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. This book explicates the dynamics of white fragility and how we might build our capacity in the ongoing work towards racial justice. Right. So white people are insulated from racial stress and viewed as the norm. And everyone who isn't white, and we're going to say particularly black people, as it should be stated here, are a deviation from that norm. This creates an entitled expectation of comfort for white people and a lack of ability to handle any racial discomfort or stress. This prioritizing and protection of white comfort over the safety of people of color, and again, particularly black people, is present in all of our most powerful institutions, as we can see today. Government, media, advertising, textbooks, policing, the list goes on and on. And this all works to create structures of racism and white supremacy, the very things this country was built on and holds it up in place. Because of this, white people are socialized in a system that fosters a deeply internalized sense of superiority that they are either unaware of or would never admit or have a hard time admitting. White people in America rarely, if ever, feel a sense of not belonging racially. Studies show that white children pick up a sense of white superiority as early as preschool. Preschool, yeah. Right. This book opens by laying out two foundational pieces of white fragility— individualism and the idea of racelessness. Individualism teaches us to exempt ourselves from systemic racism, to believe we are the exception to the rule, that failure is not due to structures, but due to the individual. And we hear this all the time from right people, right? I built my business from the ground up with a million-dollar loan from my father. How dare you say I was privileged? My family immigrated here in this whatever year, and they were discriminated against then. White people are taught not to talk about race and that their race doesn't matter. Other people's races do, but theirs don't. This is a luxury people of other races don't have. To have your race received without any negative attached to it is a privilege and one only white people get in this country. Instead of excusing yourself from racism because of your particular experience, you should try to reframe it instead to how did that experience shape you while also being white? 
Right. So um, we kind of want to get down to some of the specifics she talked about, which one of them is the construction of racism and difference between prejudice, racial discrimination, and racism. So obviously beneath the skin, there's no biological race. Like gender, race is a construct. One built to justify slavery in the United States where all men were supposed to be, quote, created equal. There had to be a reason created that black people were lesser. And not only that, but the genocide and forced removal of indigenous people and the theft of Mexican land had to be justified as well. Um, obviously, we see that as a restructuring with uh, Columbus Day <laughs> that we are now at least open, openly talking about. Right. And the reasoning behind this was largely capitalistic and economic, which I know is a big conversation that we're having to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson asked scientists to find proof that black people were inferior and find proof, quote proof that is, (laughs) they did. Um, And these findings as a scientific fact with a century, she quotes Ta-Nehisi Coates, quote, but race is the child of racism, not the father. So I'm going to say that again because I don't know. It took me a couple of reads for this to stick. Mm-hmm. But race is the child of racism and not the father. Yes. And if you think of things like that melting pot that we're so proud of, that, you know, when I was in elementary school, whole songs about it. Um, when you really think about it, what Americans, white Americans are asking for is European white people to assimilate to become white and we can see this in the whole idea of passing as white. Um, and that keeps that helps keep capitalistic white supremacist structures in place by dividing the working class poor by race. Another one of the main problems the book points out is that a lot of people, a lot of white people are laboring under the incorrect definition of racism along with prejudice and racial discrimination. Yeah, so let's start with how she defines prejudice, which she is, quote, prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs. Prejudice consists of thoughts and feelings, including stereotypes, attitudes, and generalizations that are based on little or no experience and then are projected onto everyone from that group. It's something that all people have, and she does explain the fact that automatically, if you're listening, if you're in a community, you're going to have prejudice because you're going to be told something about a group of people, whether or not you want to say you believe it or not. So again, since we've been taught this is bad, we try to avoid this reality at all costs. And going on, discrimination is action based on prejudice, like ridicule, exclusion, slander, and violence. And it could be seen very subtle, like not interacting with someone or trying to avoid someone. Right. On the other hand, um, quote, when a racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed into racism, a far-reaching system that functions independently from the intentions or self-images of individual actors. Meaning that just because you have good intentions, it is the default of society and reproduces automatically. That is a quote again. Um, racism is also one-directional. It does not benefit white people one day and black people another because of the institutionalized nature of structural racism. In this way, in the U.S., only white people can be racist. And of course, the status quo benefits white people. This set of advantages is what we call white privilege. And a lot of white people have a a knee-jerk defense to this, uh, which we'll get into more later, that basically boils down to, but I struggled, I worked. Um, White privilege does not dismiss that. 
but it, it just says that white people don't face the same obstacles based on race. They don't face any obstacles based on race. This is also why reverse racism is not a thing. And here's another quote from the book. Reverse is an interesting term. Why not just say racism is racism? Reverse suggests it is going in the wrong direction. People who complain about reverse racism never seem to complain about racism otherwise. These are not racial justice advocates. Right. And I know she also puts this in terms of the fact that prejudice and racism, once again, are two different things. And that, yes, all people can mm-hmm. be prejudiced. So I'm going to yes. put that there again. <laughs> yes, very clear. Yeah, and so in 2019, uh, she told The Guardian, quote, racism is a white problem. It was constructed and created by white people, and the ultimate responsibility lies with white people. For too long, we've looked at it as if it were someone else's problem, as if it was created in a vacuum, and I want to push against that narrative. Um, and you can tell she's had to work with some very angry white people in her day. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, I'm sure, have experienced this, if you've actually come to the point of being able to be confrontational, you have also probably heard the pushback. (laughs) Uh Um, So she says, quote, if your definition of a racist is someone who holds conscious dislike of people because of race, then I agree that it is offensive for me to suggest that you are racist when I don't know you. I also agree that if this is your definition of racism and you are against racism, then you are not racist. Now breathe. I'm not using this definition of racism and I'm not saying that you are immoral. Quote. Yes. Uh, so you can see just in the like tone of that, that she's had to be like, okay, it's okay. To diffuse a situation. Exactly, exactly. A lot of times. And I'm not going to lie, I feel kind of uncomfortable <laughs> in being a part of this conversation because I don't want to be that woman of color over here saying, I'm accusing you of something. Like mm-hmm. this, is, this is, makes me uncomfortable just to talk about it, even though it's a book club that... I'm talking with people that I know want to talk about it. And yeah, it's a whole thing. And I, I, it's like, it's this level of where we are in trying to meet and satisfy the status quo, which is white supremacy. And we're not saying that as a negative. We're just saying that as a sense of measurement. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm going to talk about this more at the end, but uh there are other factors that get all tied up into this too, right? Of like being women and particularly women from the South. There, There is that whole like don't rock the boat um, kind of mentality that we are also socialized into. Right. So, yeah. Um, there is a lot to unpack. We have a lot to work to do. Um, and we will continue to do some of that right now. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we're back with a note on white supremacy because most people think of KKK members or something along those lines when we think of white supremacy. But D'Angelo clarifies, quote, for sociologists and those involved in current racial justice movements, 
However, white supremacy is a descriptive and useful term to capture the all-encompassing centrality and assumed superiority of people defined and perceived as white and the practices based on this assumption. White supremacy in this context does not refer to individual white people and their individual intentions or actions, but to an overarching political, economic, and social system of domination. Because the United States is, slash, was perhaps uh, the largest mm. global superpower, white supremacy was passed around worldwide. She quoted another Ta-Nehisi Coates essay, The Case for Reparations. To ignore the fact that one of the oldest republics in the world was erected on a foundation of white supremacy, to pretend that the problems of a dual society are the same as the problems of an unregulated capitalism is to cover the sin of national plunder with the sin of national lying. The lie ignores the fact that reducing American poverty and ending white supremacy are not the same. White supremacy is not merely the work of hot-headed demagogues or a matter of false consciousness, but a force so fundamental to America that it's difficult to imagine the country without it. David Duke's godson, Derek Black, a white nationalist organizer, once said, my whole talk was the fact that you could run as Republicans and say things like, we need to shut down immigration, we need to fight affirmative action, we need to end globalism, and you could win these positions, maybe as long as you didn't get outed as a white nationalist and get all the controversy that comes along with it. And we see a lot of this right now. Yep, I was going to say he's not wrong, is he? Mm -mm. Um, so the author also asks white people to try to remember the first time they were aware of race and then to look back on whether or not their families had friends of color and what made a good neighborhood, a good school, and who lived and went to these respective places. And as a kid, what did you glean from that information? As children, we were taught not to talk about it, that it's shameful. Why would it be shameful? What does that teach us? And I think one of the prime examples right now is the controversy that's happening with Nickelodeon. Oh, yeah. They aired a very powerful ad in which they were just silenced and just breathing for the amount of time that George Floyd was unable to breathe. And they got complaints about how this made their children uncomfortable, and I will say specifically white children, and it was too dark for them. And Nickelodeon had a great reply, and, you know, this is a hard subject, but many children face these hardships, essentially. Yeah. And this should be taught. Um, and yeah, I think it was an awesome message, but it does show, once again, who in this country is privileged enough not to have to worry about it. Right, right. And, and just that. say, this is too traumatizing, which was a lovely thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen that argument play out online of... Uh, well, we don't have the luxury of not having this conversation with our children. I've seen black people saying that, and um, it's true. So right. need to need to be aware of that privilege and talk about it. Um, and so when it comes to defensive responses white people have, uh, when told they are complicit in racism, there are two main ones that the book breaks it down into. And the first one is color blindness. We've all probably heard jokes about this one before. Uh, this idea originated in the 1960s when people were seeing images on TV of white cops attacking black men, women, and children with police dogs and fire hoses. Again, Seems like times haven't changed that much. Um, and these people, white people, did not want to be associated with blatantly racist acts. 
And then on top of that, after MLK gave a speech about wanting to be identified by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin, white people jumped on it. Like, okay, well, if I don't see race, the problem is solved. But by doing so, white people are erasing and refusing the reality of people of color, specifically black people. It projects the white experience onto others. It teaches and allows white people to ignore the underlying system of white supremacy. Right, and D'Angelo specifically mentions white progressives writing, quote, I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. To the degree that white progressives think we have arrived, we will put all our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. Or today, I guess we could say woke. Mm-hmm. Um, white progressives can't face the fact that they are in collusion with a system they purport to hate. She also disagrees with the claim that young people are less racist and used several statistics to make that point, including a very disheartening one. Many white millennials believed America was post-racial after the election of Barack Obama, obviously before Donald Trump, but still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've heard that, that sentiment and jokes around, oh, Obama's president racism is over. And this type of progressive racism or aversive racism, as D'Angelo terms it, can be seen in a lot of ways. Um, Using coded language like urban, looking around a white workplace and justifying it by saying black people don't apply, things like that. And this lets white people deny that they were talking about race if they're confronted. She also goes into... Uh, front stage and backstage racism here, meaning that when white people are alone with friends, they might be more comfortable making offensive racial comments, usually through a humor, heavy quotes, which leads to something called... White solidarity. Um, Yeah, so essentially, the fact that white people generally don't call out the racism of other white people, typically to preserve the peace. Um, and I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. As a person who has been in a white group, I may have been guilty of that as well. This is another way of keeping racism in place, and there are rewards for doing it. You're seen as more likable, easier to get along with, and in certain instances, this can help you progress in life. It is also weaponized in terms of nostalgia. The good old days were only good for white people, and particularly white men. We view young white people who commit crimes as having quote a hard time. Brock Turner keeps coming up during our current conversation around race. We employ the opposite mind frame for young black people. White people are taught directly or indirectly that they lose nothing of value by not having people of color in their life. And that is fine and natural. And this is very, very damaging message and very key to upholding white supremacy. So if we look at the other defensive response other than colorblind, um, we have color celebrate. And this includes justifications and deflections like, I marched in the 60s, so I can't be racist, or I work with a diverse group of people, so I can't be racist, or we adopted a child from a different country, I lived as a minority in a different country for a while, things like that. Right. And I think I wanted to just interject here because I know this is specific to white women or white people in general, but this is also something that has happened in the non-black Uh, people of color communities as well, where you see as if you're celebrating not only white culture by making fun of yourself. And I am very guilty of that in which I I think I've talked about it before when I first started college and trying to get established as a person. I hung around with a lot of white kids 
in which I would make jokes of myself of being that Asian, whatever Asian joke or stereotype that they needed to be comfortable. And oftentimes I would get rewarded by saying, oh, cool, cool. You're one of the cool, you're one of those cool right. people. You, you're, you're cool like that. You can hang like that. Uh-huh. And so it was a freedom to go ahead and joke about my culture. And even though I died a little inside, <laughs> I will say it that way. Every time I heard it, I kept going with it because I wanted to make sure that the white kids were comfortable with me. And I had to prove my worth in being able to hang with white people. So that's definitely a narrative that obviously she won't get into because she is directing her conversation at uh, the white community. But I think it's good to know that that does happen a lot. And not only is it my responsibility, and I still feel guilty for claiming my heritage and not disparaging myself, but it is also of others to make sure that we can hold each other up. But that's a whole other conversation, I know. Yes, one that we should have someday. <laughs> um, one of racism's most adaptive, insidious tools uh, is something D'Angelo calls the good-bad binary. If a person is good, they can't be racist. That racism is conscious. It's a biased act made by bad people. It's a crime that you have to commit. Going back to the point about white progressives, this narrative works there too. I think racism is bad, therefore I am not racist and do not have to do anti-racist work. She recommends instead viewing racism as a spectrum, with one end being most racist and the other being least racist, and the work is never done. You're always working towards least racist. Right. Um, D'Angelo also devotes a chapter entirely to anti-blackness, calling blackness the ultimate other in the white mind. And many experts believe that a lot of stereotypes white people project onto black people are the ones that pervert actual reality that white people don't want to see in themselves. For instance, the stereotype that black people are dangerous when white people are the ones enacting violence against black people. Another example given is the white sentiment around affirmative action due to the belief that it unfairly benefits black people, when in fact white women have been the primary beneficiaries. There's a lot of misinformation among white people about affirmative action and common belief that it is, quote, unfair, when in fact it's only an attempt to give qualified minorities the same opportunity. It's a way of hiding from racialized trauma and victim blaming. We see it in the harmful and gross narrative of quote, ungrateful black people, welfare queens, or Colin Kaepernick kneeling in protests, or the response to having President Obama in the Oval Office. And here's another quote from the book. To put it bluntly, I believe that the white collective fundamentally hates blackness for what it reminds us of, that we are capable and guilty of perpetrating immeasurable harm and that our gains come through the subjugation of others. Uh, the white savior plays a role in all this too. And I was thinking about it as well, the whole Southern narrative of, but they were nice to their slaves or whatever. <laughs> it's like... Or the slaves sold themselves. The white uh, Africans sold themselves. Right. Which I just actually heard not too long ago. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of things. Right. Reading this has made me think a lot on how non-black women of color also fall into this trap of comparing or othering. And of course, it's not just women. Um, but it is a way of scapegoating to make sure to not be at the bottom, for the lack of better terms. Uh, the narrative that there's only a small amount of space and there is a performative measure in making sure to be in the good graces of white culture. And if we believe white culture is the ultimate slash supreme goal, then we must follow suit and push against the other or the enemy. 
to put it even more bluntly. We see many conversations holding up a challenging just white people. And I'm not going to say, because I know people get really upset about this, um, but we have to recognize that prejudice we hold in regards to ourselves and to others when it comes to people of color being pushed against each other to fight against each other in order to push each other down. Only only group that really benefits is that white supremacist or white groups, essentially. And the term model minority has always been a divisive tactic to compare uh, one community against another and divide and conquer, essentially. Mm -hmm. Case in point, Tu Tao, who was one of the officers present when George Floyd was pinned down and murdered, um, he was complicit. And as an Asian woman, I cannot deny that he is his unwillingness to stop it was a big problem to this whole crisis. And to pretend like he is not a part of the narrative is just as wrong and just as um, damaging for the case of Black Lives Matter. And I think that's part of the thing that we want to talk about is there's this whole hierarchy and this battle within people of color where they feel like it's almost like fighting for the scraps, if that makes sense, and trying to be accepted in a culture that doesn't want to accept anyone except their own. Right. And that, I mean, that's another way when we look at the how far-reaching white supremacy is and the damage it's done, and you can see things like internalized racism, um, we can trace it all back to this thing. Right. Um, and just how powerful it is and has been. Um and all of this stuff we've been talking about and more stuff, if you didn't read the book, uh, <laughs> I would recommend it, uh, is how we arrived at white fragility, which is a form of bullying and white racial control. White fragility itself is not fragile. It is, in fact, quite strong. It is a sociology of dominance. It's a way of shutting down any conversation and keeping white supremacy in place. White people demonstrate white fragility through several weaponized methods. One of the biggest ones being defensiveness. Um, shutting down, refusing to engage when any racial trigger around whiteness comes up, which is pretty much any discussion around racism or race. Uh, many white people believe that they have been treated unfairly. They are the ones uh, that have been treated unfairly or are being discriminated against or that they are being attacked. Um, and, and we've talked before about this, and I think it's a really, really important note, um, the whole impact versus intent. Ultimately, your intentions don't matter. Uh, this is a way of turning it on the other person. In this case, a black person and painting them as the aggressor are just too sensitive. That's not to say like, you should have good intentions, but you should never be like, but my intentions were good. You're being too sensitive. Don't even bring that up. And like, right. it just, it, it ultimately, it really doesn't matter. And to add to that, the new argument of you're putting a bigger divide by saying that we it's us against them type of thing. I've seen many of the things where people are like, well, you talking about this puts more divide and racial tension. Yeah. Which is an absurd argument. Stop yes. it. it. Just stop yeah. it. You're making And I know point. that's not our listeners. <laughs> right. <laughs> but still, just stop it. I just I need that to be said. Um, and of course, and we've kind of already talked about this previously on a previous episode, another way white fragility manifests is as white lady tears. Generally, when a white lady cries, all the attention, especially of white men, is diverted her way. And in many ways, emotions 
are political. And there's this historical context of black men being brutalized and murdered because of white women's distress. I think we just had a perfect example of what could have happened. Yes. Fortunately, it didn't go her way. Um, these tears are a mechanism of white guilt and indulgence. Quote, since many of us have not learned how racism works and our role in it, our tears may come from shock and distress about what we didn't know or recognize. For people of color, our tears demonstrate our racial insulation and privilege. Yes. So that is a quote. From the White Lady Tears is a whole chapter in the book. Um, mm. And I will say this, I have done a lot of self-reflection. Actually, I've been doing it for a while, both as for the show and then when the pandemic happened and then with all those protests. And I, I really think, I really recommend it. Um, just taking the time and to reflect and to write about and try to get to the bottom of things. And one thing that I'm trying to work on is I've almost shied away so much from white lady tears that I like become emotionally, like I almost cut off because I do not want to be that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I've like gone too far in the other direction where I'm like not emotionally available. Right. Um, so that is something that I'm actively trying to be better about. So yeah, it's a constant work in process. And I, I do recommend the self-reflection and uh, wondering yeah. like, if you have found yourself crying in situations, why exactly are you doing it? Right. Just ask right. I think, I think that's the whole conversation of being weaponized. I mean, either way, because if you're too stoic, you're, too, you're a robot, you're emotionless, you're heartless. And I know that's been used against women as well. Um, it's been used against men as well for having emotions. As I have read repeatedly as this incidents are happening and it's heartbreaking and it's terrifying. And for those men who are actually trying to make change and are emotionally affected by it, mm-hmm. they're being called all these things as well. And it's absurd. It's absurd in every way. But there's absolutely an understanding because, again, we talked about Amy Cooper using her emotions as a weaponized mm-hmm. way of trying to get a black man arrested, hurt, or murdered. Yes. Yes. And... All of this, everything we're talking about, the white fragility, the defensiveness, the white lady tears, serves to make it generally not worth it in black people's minds to talk about race and racism with white people because some sort of punishment will usually take place. Most often, the expectation of free emotional labor, of dealing with the hurt feelings of the white person. Uh, It also reinforces that black people can't slash shouldn't be authentic around white people. And this just keeps, this just serves to keep white supremacy in place. Um, When D'Angelo asked a black man what it would mean for white people to be more open to feedback, he said it would be revolutionary. And I mean, that's the constant back and forth right now that we see, I'm going to say in every, specifically in black women's social media, Mm -hmm. I've seen them having to freaking coddle white women. Yeah. Um, I just read this morning uh, Rachel Cargill, who is uh, someone we adore and follow closely and listen to very closely, um, where an older white woman talked about how, please be gentle with us. You know, we are toddlers. We're trying to learn to walk. And she just called her out. She's like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for you to listen. If you want to listen, listen. But this is almost 
this is actually very, she called it manipulative, and it was, to try to tell me that I'm doing something that could hurt your feelings mm-hmm. or that could be too hard for you. And then the woman's response was, I'm in tears now. I'm crying. Oh. Way to go. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, is like, again, this is manipulative, and this is what they are calling about white lady tears. And the fact is, she is not your babysitter. She is not your handler. She is not your mama. She is not your uh, any of those things. Caregiver in any least way. She is a black woman trying to get you to see the emotions, the pains, the hardships, the reality of racist jerks, (laughs) putting it nicely, putting her in danger. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's not black people's responsibility or black women's responsibility, specifically in this case, to make you feel better. They really have no responsibility towards you, and those resources are available to you. You can find them. They have been there. (laughs) They've been there. And another thing to that is they do it, though. They do it because they are trying to make change. They do it because of the passion and love they have for themselves and for us. And they even though they don't have to, they do it and it's there and it's insulting to not look it up first, to ask them to regurgitate what has already been probably ridiculously traumatizing and continues to be traumatizing and fatiguing for them as people, as humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Um, We do have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we wanted to close out with what the book closes out with, which are some tips to, if you want to, and you should, um, how to become more anti-racist and what steps should you take? So I think as Annie, you put it, as well as it says, it, it is referring that nobody chooses to be socialized into white supremacy and racism. Um, most everyone would choose not to, but it's there. Yeah. It's there. Mm-hmm. Um, Glennon Doyle wrote about this in Untamed, which we talked about previously on our book club, describing it as poison we all breathe in. And in an interview with Teaching Tolerance, D'Angelo said, we need to reframe racism like this. Quote, I have it. I have been socialized into it. And so what am I going to do about it? This changes the focal point from I'm not racist to recognizing our racist patterns and working to stop them. That's, I mean, that's one of the things we say all the time is like the first step is recognizing there's a problem. So just do right. that, take that step immediately, and then you can <laughs> push forward. I mean, it's kind of how I think we've all talked about and most people advise when you're in a hard situation to ask yourself, why? Why are you thinking this way? Why did you believe this to begin with? Where was the root of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really like this quote from that interview too before we move on. She said, I don't call myself a white ally. I'm involved in anti-racist work, but I don't call myself an anti-racist white. That is because it is for people of color to decide whether in any given moment I'm behaving in anti-racist ways. And notice that that keeps me accountable. It's for them to determine if in any given moment, it's not a fixed location, 
I haven't made it or arrived. So I think that's a good way to think about it of Mm -hmm. just it's work and you have to keep doing it and you have to constantly be appraising where you are on that spectrum. So yeah, remember that that work never ends. As we can see. (laughs) Um, Reframe how you think of feedback. It's a good thing. It's a dialogue. Remember, it was hard for a black person. Thank that person. When you receive feedback and you feel defensive, first breathe, listen, reflect, and then seek out someone with a stronger analysis if you feel confused. Yes, yes. Somebody you <laughs> trust uh, to not just like coddle you. Um, right. Also, yes, very important, not right. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, and then take the time you need to process your feelings, but do not return to the situation and the persons involved. Good advice and overall, um, if you feel the need to be argumentative, just stop and ask again yeah. why. Yeah, and I, actually it was one of the, one of my biggest learning curves on this show has been um, the de- like kind of defensive knee-jerk when someone sends you a critical message. And almost always, you listeners are really fantastic and it's constructive criticism. Um, but when I first started, it kind of shut me down and be like, oh, no, no, I can't. I, either I can't go on, I'm a terrible person, or this is why they're wrong. But through my time being on this show, I've learned like what I personally need is a moment to just step back and absorb it and absorb the hurt of it. Because it's often, it's going to hurt and it'll be uncomfortable. Absorb that. And don't, like, until you're ready to not project that onto someone else, just kind of like sit with it, figure out why it hurts. And a lot of times it's probably because there's a part, it's true. (laughs) And you, like, and it is, it's a gift. I like how the book reframes it of, Somebody trusted you enough to give you this feedback. They obviously think that it was worth it, that you can work and get better. Um, so just think of it that way and and see it as this is a chance for me. This is an opportunity for me to do better and to grow. So that's my own personal uh, experience with getting feedback and kind of learning how to deal with that knee-jerk defensiveness. Um, another thing... Work on building up your racial stamina to have these conversations and to take that feedback graciously. Because as we've said, for a lot of white people, we're taught not to talk about it and we don't talk about it and we haven't talked about it. So just have that as something that you work on. Another thing, as I've said too, take the time to self-reflect. I really think this is super important. It, it, I know there's a part of me that's like, but that's just sort of sitting there and thinking when I could be doing something. You are doing something. And it's actually really difficult and really worthwhile. So highly recommend that. Do the research. Do the reading. Don't ask a Black person to point you in the right direction again. These resources are there. They're easily found. <laughs> They've been there. Uh, you can do this. Um, the reading group guide on that we've mentioned and uh, is on Robin D'Angelo's website can be really helpful for self-reflection. And actually, a lot of great resources are available on her website for uh, working through some things, starting this process, or hopefully continuing this process, because I bet a lot of our listeners um, have been doing this for a while. Um, 
And yeah, thanks to everybody out there doing the work and protesting and donating and organizing and educating and self-reflecting. We urge you to take care of yourselves and to take care of others. Right. Um, and for the people in Atlanta, I'm with you. Uh, yeah. When we were out there protesting, best way I can describe the emotions was, for me, was only intense because I'm just watching to make sure everyone is okay. Because mm-hmm. as a non-black person, once again, um, my responsibility is to be the the ally, to follow the lead of the black community and the black leaders here. And But I will say it was really encouraging to see the people really taking care of each other, whether it was handing out masks, uh, and they were a lot of people there just doing that, handing out water, hand, making sure everybody's okay, coming around, because it was really hot in Atlanta when I was out. Mm-hmm making sure everybody was hydrated, making sure everybody was okay. They were telling people how to stand and make sure they weren't in the sun, um, giving snacks out. It was fantastic. There was a very large school bus at one point. If people were getting too hot, they would allow you to hop on board. So it was really beautiful to me um, about what was happening and how beautiful it is. And then there was a lot of voices, uh, especially the black voices. And even at one point, uh, we started chanting, respect black women. And I thought that was one of the key components of this whole movement, because we've seen a lot of divisiveness even within that movement of Black Lives Movement about who does that include? Are you including yeah. black women? Are you listening to the black women? Are you listening to black feminists? And we kind of had that quote from our update episode last week, I'm assuming when this is published, this would be last week, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, about uh, Breonna Taylor and um, Brittany Cooper about the fact that there is a strong need for black feminist leaders, and this, this is one of those reasons. And then we talked about, we didn't talk about what we should talk about more, about the black trans lives matter as yeah. well, and the fact that a black trans woman was just uh, beaten and in her own community because there was no, this, this level of disrespect in that conversation as well. And as well as the fact that a black trans person was murdered mm-hmm. um, and killed by police as well. So, I mean, there's just this whole bigger component of what this looks like and who we need to be looking at and following. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like Elena did a great job and encompassing all of that. And it was really beautiful to me. There's so many amazing people out there and I was very proud yeah to be out there. Um, and we did want to talk a little bit specifically about the resources and just to give you a couple of things that you can do, and I'm sure a lot of you are already doing, is follow Black Feminists yes. on social media. Um, this is where I'm getting a lot of good information mm-hmm. with the whole thing about the Blackout Tuesday. That was where I found that information of like, be careful of how you're yeah. hashtagging it, who is actually using this and who what, what it was for. It's really important before you jump on a bandwagon, you know where it originated. Yes. Um, so some of them that we follow and we recommend you follow, and there's so many more, by the way, but this is, we have a short time. <laughs> um, Brittany Cooper, Kia Brown, Raquel Willis, uh, Rachel Cargill, former host Bridget Todd, which I hope most of you are following anyway. Mm-hmm. Jamel Hill, um, and they are talking and they have been telling us how to advocate and where to go. You don't need to ask people. You can just read. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, you can listen to podcasts like Therapy for Black Girls, Code Switch, What a Day, Scam Goddess, uh, Let Your Voice Be Heard, uh, Jamel Hill's Unbothered. There are so many out there that you can look up um, and that are Black-led and you need to look up. And then as listeners have pointed out, though we chose this book first, 
first due to the recommendation again of our therapist. There are so many books written by women and that we should be supporting, such as Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper, which I heard her speak. She is phenomenal and hilarious. If y'all have a good chance to listen to her speak live, amazing. So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Aluo, Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis, and Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. And again, these are just a few. There's so many good books out there. Support your local bookstores. Support Black-owned bookstores. These are the times that we need to look at it. And I, I love the reaction we got, Annie, when we posted this up as our book club. It was a lot of amazing people who were so excited, who have already started reading it, who already had the book and was ready and has been ready. And I love that um, people have been so big. And if people come on with controversial, antagonistic trolling, Mm -hmm. our listeners have been ready for that too. And I love that. And I also love that our listeners have been advocating that we are appropriate in what we're who are advertising, essentially, I guess, who we are platforming. And thank you so much because this is the type of conversation that we have wanted and we want to do continuously. Yes, yes. You listeners are amazing. We're always inspired and grateful um, to have you in our community. Um, And yeah, let's keep this conversation going. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. Hey, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs> Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 